grain of the tree grows from the, the trunk along the branches to support the weight. And it's continuous, right? So trees can survive, you know, tsunamis, and like the crazy wind storms that we're having here right now in the Bay Area, but they're incredibly light structures. And we're adopting that here. We're saying, let's use the material effectively, which means let's use it where it's needed based on the loading or the performance of that part. Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. Injection molding, additive manufacturing. These are both manufacturing processes that just about any of you listening know and understand, at least in some capacity. But how about additive molding? My guest today is leading an innovative business that's putting a unique process in play to manufacture composite parts at scale in ways that weren't previously possible. Let me introduce him. Riley Reese, co-founder and CEO at Eris, previously co-founded additive manufacturing company Arivo, where he led R&D and product architecture. Riley's experience with innovation and in additive manufacturing began as a grad student at UC Berkeley, building biodegradable heart tissue scaffolds. After working on failure analysis and product design at Stryker, Riley led innovation program management for additive manufacturing at TNO, the Dutch research commercialization company. As CEO at Eris, Riley leads an award-winning team who developed a first-of-its-kind manufacturing and materials and software technology platform, Additive Molding, that enables previously impossible performance at scale. Riley, welcome to the show. Joe, awesome. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, likewise. I'm really excited for this conversation. I think you guys are doing some pretty unique stuff and might be might be my own ignorance, but putting together some things that I wouldn't normally put in the same sentence, I think, with, with additive and molding. And so I'm very curious to kind of hear you talk about that. So, well, Riley, your, your deep technical background is unique, I think, compared to the typical manufacturing sector CEO that I talked to. Talked to a lot of family-owned business owners, you know, family-owned businesses or second or third generation people. I mean, I know your background has, has really been technology and I know it's influenced your vision for Eris. So I'd love to hear just a little bit about your backstory and how it led you to where you are. Sure. Yeah, yeah, no, happy, happy to do that. And maybe just starting kind of with your point, yeah, you know, Eris is overall a, a unique, really unique beast, unique company in the, in the space. So you mentioned, right, not a typical CEO profile for a manufacturing company. I would say that across the board with, Really, everybody in their in, the, in their roles at, at, at the company at Eris, both here and in, in in our factory in Taiwan, but then even with the technology and what we're doing. So, like, kind of starting with where 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 we are and what we do as a company, like we are innovating on a very high volume scale, or right high volume production using molding. And it's and it's interesting because you you can talk to a lot of people in manufacturing that are doing new things with different existing methods, but there's, there's very 
few people, really anyone that I've, that, that I've found that's taking existing technology and really radically trying to change that technology. And in our case, it's molding. But look at, right, look at forming, look at machining, like these, a lot of these techniques have been around for a really long time and molding about 100 years. Like we've had, we've had stuff that's been, been molded now for a long time. But there's been really little innovation in, in the molding sector. There's been refinement, there's been optimization, there's been new materials introduced to the space. But in general, the dynamics of how molding take place have more or less remained the same. And so what we did was take molding, knowing that it's one of the main techniques producing all the parts around us, right from this mouse to my earbuds to, right, to the water bottles, like molding is, is, is all around us all the time. Why can't we take that method and apply much better materials and a much better design philosophy to arrive at an incredible performance that, that we otherwise couldn't achieve. And so that's really, that's really where we started and what, what we're doing here at Eris. And it's been influenced heavily by the experience that I've had in the 3D printing world, where I started in 3D printing kind of during my master's work in the medical side. And, 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 then, and then it's one of the co-founders at Arivo, where we were the first to do 3D printing with really high-performance materials. And, and though 3D printing is a great technology that has a number of specific use cases, it's not a technology that's going to replace the everyday items around us, whether that's our consumer electronics, whether that's like the, the shoes we wear, right? Whether it's, whether it's the, the equipment that we're using in sports and things like that, like it's not, it's not going to be used at that scale. And so we really started Eris looking at that concept of 3D printing can get us there to, 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 to the volumes and the quality that are needed at scale. Let's take a technology that already has demonstrated its capability for quality and volume and then supercharge it with the material and the design. And so, yeah, in a nutshell, that's what we did. Oh, very cool. Well, I'd love to have you go into the weeds a little more too. Like, what exactly is additive molding? Like, what are you doing? Is there an example you could use to maybe explain it and make the concept a little more tangible to listeners? Sure. Yeah, exactly. Because that's it, a question, as you can imagine, we get a, we get a lot. So I can start with maybe what, what it's not. <laughs> so it's not 3D printing, as I was just explaining. It has an additive portion to it, but it's not 3D printing. And, and when I say not 3D printing, what I mean is we use hard tooling. So we machine tools out of pieces of aluminum, pieces of steel that require right, setup and cost so that we ultimately can produce cost effectively at scale. So from that perspective, we're not a low volume one-off type of production method. We're a higher volume production method. We're also, when you think about, you think about what, what, what we're doing here that's unique. So we're not, right, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not 3D printing from that, from that perspective. And we're not injection molding from the other perspective. A lot of people are like, oh, injection molding. So I get that. You melt material. You have an auger, a screw, high pressure, high temperature. You shove it in a mold. You cool down the molds, you pop out the part. That's not what we're doing. So to get to what, what, what we have, it's more of what people look at as compression molding, which is right, a, a lesser known, lesser used equivalent to or, or uh, comparable to injection molding, where you're inserting material into a tool. So you have a, a, a tool, but you're adding that material in the form into the tool. You're not injecting it in the melt state. So in a solid state, we're inserting material. Then we close the tool and then we cycle it. Then we go up in temperature to melt all the material and then down in temperature to cool it. And then the part comes out. And the reason why we're using a compression molding style process over an injection molding process 
because that compression molding style gives us the ability to maintain and control the fiber alignment through the part. And that's at the core of what we do uniquely. That is additive molding. And that's what gives us this performance. We have a unique ability to align fibers along the stress directions of that part continuously through the design of that part. So if I can walk kind of through the steps, we start with making our own material. So we source resin, thermoplastic resins, right, which, is, which again is most of the plastics that you see around us that are molded. And, and we source the fibers, carbon, glass, even some natural fibers. We combine those to make our own, what's called prepreg. So it's a combination about 50-50 of the plastic, which is used to hold the, the carbon fiber together and then, the, and then the carbon fiber, glass fiber. Now we have our material. That material is in a form of a, of a filament, like a round rod, which again is unique where most composites are using tapes or fabrics. We have this in a rod shape so that we can control the bend radius. So we can take a rod and we can bend it around a really tight bend, where you can do that with a tape, right? You get, get, get what's called like the bacon effect. Like you try to take a tape and steer it in plane, you end up wrinkling the edges, right? So a filament, you can do that without wrinkling the edges. So, so we can get tighter control and more nuanced control of, of where, how the fibers aligned in the design with this filament. And taking that, we go through what we call a preforming step. I'll show a part here where we have our material in the filament form that's shaped in a number of different subunits to create what goes into the mold. So this part is made up of individual aligned fiber bundles that is then placed in a mold to produce this part. Mm -hmm. This is, this is a drone bracket, for example, that we made. And so this is an example of a part where we've, we've automated from material coming off the spool all the way to this final part, this entire process. Yeah, I'd love to put it in context a little bit more. You know, what, what are some applications that, I mean, you kind of just showed one. For those of you listening right now, well, we can post a video to, to this to, in case you want to kind of take a look at parts that Riley's actually holding up in front of us. But I'd be curious just to hear like, what are some specific applications or times when it would make sense to use additive molding versus, you know, a more traditional, well-known process? Yep. Yep. So I'll go back to the kind of the question you had, like, what, what is additive molding? Mm -hmm. Starting again with what it's not. So it's not 3D printing. As a result, it's not, it's not useful for really low volume one-off parts. And it's not injection molding. So it's not useful for really cheap commodity parts that don't have a type of value or, or, or let's say premium to performance. So we look at what we do unique. It, it, we can create the highest performance products. And when we say performance, we're referring to, to weight or stiffness to weight, which is kind of the measure of performance, right? It's like how strong is this per unit weight or per unit volume? And so the industries that value the strength to weight, stiffness to weight, get certain benefits that are unique to the industry. So like, I'll give you some examples. So like you have footwear where we can create better energy return than existing structures. Energy return equates to faster times for runners, equates to, you know, better, better, more reactive energy around, around football, soccer, right, track. So we work in footwear across all those segments because we can create the highest strength to weight, stiffness to weight structures. It gives the best performance, which as I mentioned, kind of depends on the specific sport. When you look at consumer electronics, it has to do with impact resistance or drop impact resistance, right? So, so you have, this is an example of a phone housing, right? And we've, we take a, this, this phone housing and we've tested, we've tested a number of these different phone housing in, in drop impact. And we can outperform existing 
plastic or metal solutions. And effectively, you know, everybody worries about their screen cracking when you drop it. Using our enclosures, you can drop at higher heights without that screen cracking. And if you jump and you go to like wearables, another big sector for us, we can produce parts that are that are actually thinner than an eggshell. So way thinner than you can injection mold. So from this perspective, you know, people are looking at injection molding, right? Again, like all these type of structures. And the wall thickness here is around 0.8 millimeters. We, we can go down to 0.2 millimeters. We can go 75% thinner. And what it means for companies is, you know, one, one company we're working with, we're able to double the battery size that they could have in that device. We can make things lighter. We can make things more elegant and sleek. And so when you think about, you know, wearables and, and maybe more specifically like AR, VR, a big function of its adoption in our society is usability. Does it look good when I put it on? And how much do I notice it when I'm wearing it? And, and weight is such a huge impact that, that we, we, can, we can do a lot there that, that no other technology can do. So Riley, you, a few minutes ago, you started talking a little bit about fiber alignment and what's possible there. One of your, your team members ahead of this conversation said, hey, you need to ask Riley about fiber alignment. He's, he's, you know, he's got a lot to say about it. And so I'm just curious if there's anything more you want to get into there. Yeah, I mean, of- yeah. And I, I can give kind of another example. I mean, really, it is, it, it gets back to like, it's the, it's the core technology of additive molding. So conventional composites deal with something like this, like, I'm holding up a footwear plate that's made from a fabric and it's a woven fabric. So picture a Lamborghini, picture like the 787 design, picture your golf club shafts or your skis, like all this high bikes. This is, this is the look, right? And then people are used to seeing this weave look and they're like, oh, this means it's carbon fiber. This is great. So much so you can find plastic parts that are just have this texture on it. It's not even carbon fiber, but they're trying to look like carbon fiber to, to show that they have really high performance. And well, this is high performance, right? It is better than you can get with metal or plastic. It's not taking full advantage of the performance of fiber because the fiber itself, it's like 10x stronger than metal, generally speaking, along that, that, the direction of that fiber. So in this case, you know, when I'm bending this plate, all the fibers running in this direction are resisting that load. But all the fibers running perpendicular to that direction or not, they're playing very little role in defending. And so what we did was say, why, why, why are we just dealing with the general fabric and trying to lay it up in, in, a, in a, you say isotropic is kind of the technical term, but in a way in which all of the fibers are running in different orientations to try to create a uniform performance. Instead, we should be aligning the fibers along the stress directions of the part to take advantage of the fact that there's an incredibly high performance that you can achieve along the direction of the fiber, right? Like all of the material running in this direction is wasted material compared to the loading case for that part. So you end up making like the composite parts of today are heavier than they need to be and, and more expensive than they need to be because of this, this, this type of material construction and design. Instead, we jump to something like this. Now I'm holding up one of our plates that we've manufactured and if I'm describing it, like it looks like a web structure. So this was made through topology optimization using our software to create the right geometry and shape to take advantage of alignment of fiber. And so you're looking at a complex web structure that's roughly in the shape of a foot. But when you look at it and compare it to the other plate I was holding up, you can see it's, right, it's roughly half the volume or space. 
And with the fibers aligned now, instead of just going either in one direction or the other, they're now aligned along the natural contour of the foot, we can get a much better performance. And when I bend it, you can see it flexes just here in the midsole, midsole midsection of this plate, as opposed to at, the, at either end. So getting back to this, it's, it's the, this concept of fiber alignment well, what we're doing, it's new in the, in, the, in the space of manufacturing. It's not new going back to things around us, right? I'm, I'm looking here at this like wooden table we have. You look at like a tree and the grain of the tree grows from the, the trunk along the branches to support the weight. And it's continuous, right? So trees can survive tsunamis, and like the crazy wind storms that we're having here right now in the Bay Area, but they're incredibly light structures. Same thing like with, with shells, same thing with with, with a number of different kind of plant and animal growth patterns in nature. And we're adopting that here. We're saying, let's use the material effectively, which means let's use it where it's needed based on the loading um, or the performance of that part. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I wanna let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Mary, take it away. Yes, so I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Mary Keough. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. Right now, we have a group of 50 plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations. We meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic. And one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to get better at a manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value, no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. Oh, and on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where our attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together all week long between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. Riley, I know that doing composite parts at scale is challenging and it's something you guys have figured out how to do well at Aris. I'm just kind of curious what's behind that. Yeah, it's, it's back to this, the, the concept of kind of additive molding, right? So if, if, if you, can, you can take this alignment and you, can, you, can, you could sit here using our material and having our design software, you, know, you, could, you could do this by hand, like routing it and trying to get it all of that. There's no way you're going to make more than a few parts in that method at least cost effectively. And that's why from the beginning, we started with this molding process. It's molding with a cavity that already has the shape of the part that takes on whatever you put into it, you can get very high repeatability and, and very high volume. And so when, when we talk about, you know, what we're doing in high volumes, the, the, the basis of it is around the fact that we're using hard tooling and we're using molds to produce these parts. 
So Riley, I know you've done some innovative things with biomaterials for heart surgery. I can't help but ask about that. I, I actually had open heart surgery when I was eight years old. This was over 30 years ago at this point, but oh, I'm, I'm fascinated by how much has probably changed and how different that experience might have been for me or my family if it were now rather than 30 years ago. So I'm just kind of curious to hear you talk a little bit about what you've done there and what you see happening. Yeah, yeah, cool. I mean, it's yeah, interesting to hear your experience. It's great, yeah. great, great kind of where you are now, and right, what, what we were able to do at the time. So I, I, I can't speak specifically to, to right to surgery and some of the techniques that, that have evolved there. But sure. if I can speak like from from the material perspective, what, what I was working on back in Berkeley was replacing um, scar tissue in the heart to regrow new new tissue. So if, if you look at like, if you if you suffer a heart attack, and many people do, that area of the heart, actually, it atrophies and then dies, turns into scar tissue. It doesn't regrow into new tissue. As a result, you're much more likely to suffer another heart attack. And then you're expected, your, 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 your life expectancy actually reduces as you have more and more heart attacks because of the damage to the tissue that results. Mm -hmm. So we were looking at, let's regrow the tissue and have the body regrow the tissue in those areas to restore the heart to full capacity and full functioning. And so to do that, we were 3D printing a structure that represented the extracellular matrix of the heart. So you look at the heart, right? The heart has all of these cells, cardiomyocytes that beat together. And when they beat together, the heart contracts, right? All at once and then, and then relaxes. It, it, the way that they communicate is through the matrix and is through the structure that they're sitting on, this kind of web of fibers. If you just throw the heart cells in a Petri dish, they'll grow, but then they're all going off like fireworks to their own beat. So we, 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 what we did was take existing material. It's like the same material actually you find in lotions, like polyethylene glycol. So what makes lotions thick and not watery? The same thing. It's been, it's been, it's, and, it's, and, it's, and it's used in growing tissue cultures. So we took that and by re reducing the form, changing the form in which it exists to these nanoscale fibers, and creating a web of nanoscale fibers, we were able to represent the extracellular matrix close enough to where the, the, the heart cells beat together and we were having an actual contraction that would occur through the heart cells. And it's just, it's like, it's amazing to see that you don't need new material chemistry to achieve radically different functionality or performance. In this case, existing material has been around forever used in a new way, a new form in this way of 3D printing these nanofibers that got us the performance to where you could, you could actually grow these heart tissues on a scaffold now. So you could use someone's stem cells, grow it on a tissue, implant it in their body, and actually regrow over that scar tissue. So this was, this was really early research, but it was actually really formative for me as, as someone from the material space to, to, to really see that it's not it's not only the huge leaps in true kind of chemistry around material development but it's how we use the existing materials and 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 that it, that can also unlock these game-changing differences in functionality or performance it's similar to what we're doing here right with this fiber alignment carbon fiber and the resins that we're using existed forever but they haven't existed in a way in which they're they're used in a different form here in the, in the fact of aligning fibers along the stress direction that gives us a whole different performance structure than the one seen. Super so interesting. I, I think, I mean, 
yeah, it's, it, it is it is really cool to see. And if I go back to like your, your kind of question around medical, I, I mean, it's just fun reading about all the stuff that's happening now. I mean, there's a lot going on with new biomaterials. There's, there's a lot happening in terms of how people even are performing, right? The surgeries today with robotics and yeah. advanced kind of AI with the cameras. We were doing a little bit of this kind of at Stryker, but it's, it's, it's amazing to see how right, we can become so much more accurate in, 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 in surgery and understanding what we're doing in surgery now than, than we could before with these tools. So anyways, I hope, I hope none need to be used on me anytime soon though. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? We, we would all hope so. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool to hear you talk about that. Um, well, you know, Riley, I, I think for people who aren't, aren't involved at all in manufacturing, you know, there's, there's just kind of this, that dirty, dark, dangerous perception that so many people have from the outside. And and what I get to see talking to people like you who come from you know, a variety of different manufacturing technologies and are innovating and doing such new, interesting things, you know, I kind of see the opposite. So I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, being right in it, I mean, what has you excited about the future of manufacturing and Anything in particular you'd want to touch on there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think, I guess it, 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 you know, it's exciting, particularly for us at Eris to be, to be at the cusp of the, the opportunities we have on a really high volume space. So in in other words, like the, the impact, the composites, which is, I mean, if, if, if we're honest, really been kind of a niche material for everyday people, right? Like aero people have been into it for a really long time. Defense people have been into it. High-end automotive knows a lot about it. And then, you know, high-end sporting goods stuff, you see, you've seen it, but it's, it's, a, it's a superior material and we've known about it for a long time. So the idea that we're close to a breakthrough in, in seeing this material used much, much broader and, and the impact that this material can have and not just the performance, like having lighter weight, thinner stuff, as we've all been talking about, but actually creating a more sustainable ecosystem in manufacturing and manufacturing materials. So if, I could, if, if, if you're asking kind of what makes me excited about manufacturing today, as, as the broad trend, I would say, you know, sustainability and the turn that we're seeing from sustainability being more of a greenwashing type of activity where, hey, we can, we can just offset our emissions or, right? By, by different sources of energy that are cleaner to offset you know, the, the, the coal or gas that we have to use to what are the materials, what are the products that we're making, how are we making those products, and what is the impact that that's going to have? What, what is the lifetime you know, emissions that result from the production of our product? And we're seeing some of these brands, like, like in footwear is a great example, Consumer Electronics is another big one, that are starting to, starting to really wear this on their sleeve, so to speak. What, what I mean by that is like actually printing on their products how, how many emissions or how, how much emissions were produced when the product was, was manufactured. So it's just, just like, you know, you go into McDonald's and you're looking at the menu options and you're like, oh man, I really want, you know, I really want the, the Big Mac and the fries, but I, don't, I can't handle the 1300 calories. I'll, you know, I'm going to pick something. I'm going to pick something else. They're, they're, they're starting to create that same sentiment around users when they're looking at products. Boy, do I want to have that type of impact on the environment by buying this good over over that good? And so I think that's really exciting because I think that having having and really pushing sustainability as a core focus within these companies, getting individuals interested and focused on this will will by necessity drive better design. So how are we using our materials effectively and better materials? So having 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 more sustainable materials, um, and so you know we're 
we're, let's say, riding kind of on the coattails of this development where, you know, there's new bio-based resins. We've implemented that in our products, for example, like this, this football cleat where it's not based on petrochemical um, precursors or petrochemical initial materials. It's based on, based on bio-based materials. And we've also developed different remanufacturing techniques. So at end of life, what happens to your product? Right now, unfortunately for composites, you know, it ends up in a big landfill. Like there's these huge wind turbine blades sitting in landfills. And the challenge is with the existing materials, it's used like super glue and the fiber, you can't cost effectively recycle them. So they sit there. With our materials, like the thermoplastics that, you know, that, that we use everywhere in our life, they can be recycled. Not only can we recycle the materials, we can actually remanufacture them, meaning we can take a, a product that we know the fiber alignment, we can reform it into material that has those aligned fibers again, and then use that as feedstock for the next gen. So maintaining fiber continuity, maintaining performance from one gen to the next, and not having to sacrifice a big hit in performance. So these are a couple of things that we're working on, but, but again, more broader, there's, there's a ton of different companies from the material side to the design side, right to the packaging side that, 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 that are all working on how to, you know, how to create more sustainable material and material design. So um, I'm, I'm excited about that. And I think we'll, we'll have very different products all around us a decade from now. Well, Riley, this was a really great conversation. Can you tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about Eris? Yeah, thanks, Joe. You can find you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find a lot about our company on there as well, as well as a link to our website. It's ericscomposites.com, where you'll see the latest that we're doing, latest products that we have launched, and also ways to get to get in touch with with us and the team. Beautiful. Well, I love what you guys are doing. Love the conversation today. So really appreciate you doing this. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Joe. You bet. As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.